Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 22. I'm Steve Kwan. You know who I am. You do know who he is. BJJ Mental Models. He's Matt. <laughs> BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. Today, we're going to be talking about size discrepancies. Uh, this is <laughs> often a, a problem that little guys encounter, but it kind of goes beyond that. It's not just about dealing with size, although that's usually the thing most people want an answer to. But there, there are a lot of body type dynamics that can cause you frustration in jiu-jitsu. If you're dealing with someone who is, of course, bigger than you, that can be a problem problem or stronger than you, but there are also a lot of other body type dynamics that can give you grief. You know, you might be dealing with someone who has crazy flexibility or crazy cardio or really long limbs or crazy grips. Yeah. Crazy grip strength is a big one that a lot of people don't even think about until they fight someone like that. Um, Or even just like weird limb dimensions. You know, if you, I'm sure some of you have sparred with people who just, you can't get a choke on them because their, their neck is just like structured in such a way that you just can't get an arm around it. Um, These are all things that play to the other person's strength if they know how to use their body attributes. Uh, What we want to talk about today are some general strategies for dealing with people who might have physical attributes that you don't have. Yeah, it's it's a cool topic to talk about and it's kind of the mantra of jiu-jitsu if you think about it. If you look back to the the olden days when you had Helio versus Kimura or you have Hoist Gracie in the UFC mm-hmm. uh, one fighting these giants, um, the feature of jiu-jitsu is an, a smaller guy using technique to defeat a larger, stronger opponent, right? And um, anyone who's ever trained jiu-jitsu who walks into a gym and sees uh, a mat full of people of all different sizes. And there, of course, there's the bigger guys who are much intimidating when you first start. Um, you're always thinking how you're going to be able to defeat opponent who's, you know, can impose themselves physically upon you and how you can still be successful and be safe and use techniques. So hopefully today we can talk about some, like you said, some strategies that'll, that'll give you some ideas of how you can sort of corral and defeat a, a larger opponent or a faster opponent or a longer limbed opponent. Yeah. And so on. Yeah. And, you know, something that everyone should keep in mind is that it, it is true that technique generally trumps physical attributes most of the time, but it's not easy to get your technique to the point where that's possible. You know, once you get up to like brown and black belt level, you're going to be pretty comfortable training with guys who are bigger than you. And assuming that you have spent time training that situation, you'll probably be able to handle yourself quite well. But I think a lot of junior people get frustrated because, you know, at the white, blue, even purple level, they're not able to effectively neutralize strength yet. I mean, this this I know is something that like a lot of women find very discouraging when they're 
your training is, you know, you can be at like purple belt level and still be getting smashed by these meathead white belts. Yeah. That is normal to some degree. Um, it's normal for men too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 learning to counter a size and strength discrepancy requires really solid technique. And it's not the kind of thing you're going to pick up in a few months or even a few, a few years. You know, if your goal is to be so technically proficient that you can handle those people who are way bigger or stronger than you, that takes a long time to, yeah. to get to. So you don't want to beat yourself up because you've been training for three years and you're still struggling with big guys. Like I still struggle with big guys sometimes, especially oh, yeah. if they're somewhat decent. So it's it's something that you need to be mindful of. This is not a, a skill that you can learn overnight. So I, I would say that my first and foremost advice on this topic would be don't beat yourself up if you're struggling, even if you're relatively experienced. It's completely natural. Yeah. And, and training with uh, bigger, stronger people actually gives you a lot of mental toughness and gives you a lot of um, confidence to go into a training room full of really tough, tough training partners. And, you know, if you're not used to rolling with big guys, I, I really think that you are denying yourself uh, a pretty crucial uh, part of jujitsu training. You know, it, I, in an ideal world, we'd only fight guys that are our size and train with people that are our size, but that's just not the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and being a gym owner, I have people of all different sizes in my school. I feel kind of like I'm uh, I'm not really giving them their money's worth if I'm if I don't give them a role now and then. So definitely, you know, give give yourself the challenge to to train with people that are bigger than you, stronger than you, faster than you. And like you said, Steve, basically you're, you're equating to, uh, you know, when technique is, is at such a high level that size doesn't matter, but, um, size does matter if, if, uh, you know, there's always going to be those certain athletes that are just freaks of nature, super athletic. And at the highest level, sometimes the more athletic person wins the competition. Sometimes the more athletic person can impose their will and, and defeat someone's technique uh, just with pure aggressiveness and tenacity. So uh, size and strength and speed, those those attributes do play a huge factor in jiu-jitsu. But um, you know, I think you'd agree that when you're training and you're trying to build skills and learn, uh, it's always more important to base your mm-hmm. skills around techniques and, and concepts and understanding. There's always going to be another time and place to, to do your strength and conditioning. Yeah, this is a good point to clarify. Uh, it is true that technique is superior to physical attributes, but that doesn't mean that physical attributes are not effective, right? Uh, if there is a massive gulf in technique between you and your opponent, the technique is probably going to win. But if you and your opponent are even remotely on the same playing field in terms of technique, then it's going to be the other things that might tip the scales in one direction or another, right? I mean, if you've got two people who are roughly of the same belt rank, then yeah, the physical attributes are going to start to come into play because... When the technique is is not that different from one competitor to the next, then any other advantage you can obtain is going to play to your favor. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean size, although it it often does. It could just mean superior cardio, superior controlled aggression, superior grip strength, like that that kind of thing um, can play into it. And it's also worth noting that just having a physical advantage doesn't mean that much. Um, you have to have a body type and then know how to play to your strengths. Um, a mistake that I, I see made a lot is, you know, I'll be rolling with someone who maybe is way, way bigger or stronger than me, but they just don't know how to use it. And 
and maybe in in some ways that's psychological because I know that you know people are told oh don't use strength don't yeah, use strength true. and unfortunately the reality is a lot of big guys then try to play a game that doesn't work for them because they're kind of told that being big is bad <laughs> you yeah. know which which is really the wrong message to take away like the message that you want to send is don't rely on brute force over technique you want to learn technique and it's hard to learn technique if you're relying on brute force but that doesn't mean that you should ignore your body type. You know, no one ever tells small guys, don't be quick and nimble and don't be agile. <laughs> you know? Well, it's, it's just it's just like, uh, and I have students that do this that have come from other schools where their instructor is, you know, a bigger person who uses a, more of a smash style, you know, put the pressure, that kind of, that kind of game. That's mm-hmm. their main instructional point is, is use pressure, use speed, use strength. And the student is 140. And it just doesn't make sense for someone of that size to try and use a crushing pressure-based game, especially if they're going with someone who's much bigger, much better to play to their attributes like you're saying, Steve. Yeah, yeah. So I think a big part of jujitsu is understanding what your attributes are and also understanding that the stuff you're being taught is going to be reflective of your coach's attributes. You know, that no matter how good your coach is at understanding the needs of their students, everyone is going to ultimately have their own game and coaches are going to favor instructing you on the game that they probably are best at. And, and this can be very beneficial if you ha- pl- want to play a similar game, but it can also be a problem if your coach plays a very different game from the kind of stuff that, that you like. So, And that doesn't mean necessarily that you need to switch coaches, but you do need to be aware of whether you should be supplementing your techniques by looking for people who might play a game that is kind of more along the lines of what you want to do. I mean, it, for my own case, for example... My instructor really favors like a lot of like Spider Guard De La Hiva stuff. And that's not really my thing. I prefer kind of the like Marcelo Garcia, Emily Kwok style of game where you kind of rely on getting like inside position, entangling the legs from the bottom and, and sweeping without being too dependent on like gi control. That's my interest. So that's kind of where I get a lot of my inspiration from. Um, and that, that just comes down to knowing your body type and the kind of game that you want to play. And luckily we live in a time where there's so many resources on jiu-jitsu the sports really blown up so much in the last few years i can remember when i first started it was still kind of uh you know just becoming popular and now it's just it's it's almost on on the point of mainstream uh, almost everyone sort of has an idea of what it is and there's so many different things so many resources you can you can exhaust when you're you know if your instructor is playing a game and you think that you know maybe this isn't quite my style luckily there's so many different things that you can you know look up on youtube instructionals and and uh you know do the research yourself and sort of build a, another game by looking at how other people play their games so um and and another thing you know if you just on a side note if you're a student and you know you don't like the style that your instructor brings or you feel that you could use a different style um that actually gives you an opportunity as a student to sort of step up and be that guy in the club who likes to play worm guard excellent point or that guy who likes to play spider or you know that guy who likes to do some of the new age stuff and what that really does is it enriches the training environment for everyone especially the lower ranks now they're seeing a lot of different points of view firsthand um and you know that's that's just 
part of the natural organic um, progression that makes a club deep and makes a club uh, fun to train at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that kind of diversity is what allows um, your your club to get better because the more things that you get exposed to, to uh, at the bare minimum, the more you're going to learn how to defend yourself against them. But if you see something that you like or that seems to work for you, then you can incorporate that into your game. And circling back to what we mentioned earlier, you can't assume that your instructor is going to know the stuff that that's going to work perfectly for you just because it worked for them, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, a common thing that we need to be aware of is that not every move is going to work perfectly for every different person. Um, and this isn't even a body type thing necessarily. I don't really know why this is the case, but the reality is that some moves just work better for some people than others. And, you know, you're I, th I think we're all kind of given this impression that, oh, if you just train the technique well enough, then eventually you'll be there. And if you're struggling with this technique, it just means that you haven't trained it hard enough. And, and that's true to a degree. Yeah. But we've all been in this case, I'm sure, where some techniques, we just, they never work for us no matter how many times we drill them. And some techniques from day one, they become part of our bread and butter. And a lot of that is just understanding your body type and your mm -hmm. game and understanding that, you know, yeah, you want to drill things and you want to we need to understand that you're not going to be good at anything unless you practice it but we also understand that all tech not all techniques are created equal um you know that doesn't mean that they don't work it just means that there are different situations and different people that might work better with one technique than with another yeah. and that's there's no shame in that you just you need to be actually it's a good thing to selectively eliminate stuff from your game that is a distraction right if there's stuff that you know is just not your thing you still want to learn it if for no other reason so that you can defend against it but it's it's good in a lot of ways to be able to say no and to understand what is a distraction and what is actually additive to your game yeah and and there is actually shame if you can't barambolo there is definitely shame and if you can't box. barambolo yeah. yeah like i mean uh, uh, well actually this is something that i i love to do is you know when my my number one defense when people try to barambolo me is, is i stand i just, I just, not, I, just <laughs> I just basically just sit on them and then just look at them disappointed for even trying such a stupid thing and, and normally <laughs> that that actually works because the first time they'll try it and then after that it's just too embarrassing for them you know uh, but but yeah <laughs> um, and and like you say you know all, not all techniques are created equal it's true but also not all we're as humans, we're not all created equal. Some yeah, of us yeah, are, yeah. Un, you know, less flexible or have injuries. I have a student whose knees are rubber and he can, I go to sweep him and his knee is turned completely sideways and he doesn't make a, a wince in his face. And I'm just, I'm just like, how do you do this? Uh, have you ever had knee injuries? He just looks at me calmly and says, no. Is that the guy that we were training with the other day? Because that guy freaked me out. That's Joe. Oh, I don't know if you do. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's pretty flexible. But he's super flexible and just na naturally, you know, he's got a gift in that way. Whereas I'm going through knee injuries right now and I have to modify my game. Um, you know, some people can invert. Some people can't touch their their toes to the mat when they invert. So you, you do have to, uh, you know, realize that there is going to be certain limitations for people. But luckily, the way that now I teach jiu-jitsu uh, under the posture structure base alignment, all the stuff that Rob's taught me, then... Uh, he, he focuses on a, a type of teaching that is, you know, it doesn't play to attributes necessarily, but more of a universal type of jujitsu based on alignment that almost pretty much everyone can do, you know, and, and uh, 
And, you know, some people have issues inverting and things like that, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try and practice to invert just so you can do it because you never know when you might need to invert to, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, if you, if you've convinced, convinced yourself that you can never invert and that's just not something I can do. Well, you're right. You yeah. It's like, you'll as, never be able to do it. as the saying goes, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, flexibility and other attributes are, are super helpful for a sport like jujitsu, but, um, Hopefully your instructor recognizes that there's all different types of body types in the room and it's important to teach almost a, a universal um, type of jiu-jitsu that everyone can do based upon having a torso, a head and four levers. Yeah, and I'm, I'm reminded of that Bruce Lee quote, add what or take what is useful, discard what is not and add what is uniquely your own. You know, you want to have a solid framework for understanding jujitsu. And that's, that's your solid foundation. And then from there, you can hang on top of that, whatever concepts are applicable to you. Mm -hmm. And you can discard whichever concepts or, or whichever techniques you don't feel are really applicable to you. But you want to start from that solid foundation. Um, you know, this, this comes down to what we talked about earlier, which is the concept of do what works, right? You know, at the end of the day, if something is technically sound and you can make it work against elite competition, it works. It, it doesn't matter it, if, you know, a, a high level competitor has, you know, espoused the technique or not. It doesn't matter if other people think it's weird and exotic. If you can prove it's fundamentally sound and you can pull it off, then it works. And that should be the measuring stick by which you judge which techniques to use and which ones just don't work for you. Now, again, that, that doesn't mean you don't want to train stuff just because your body might not be super familiar or comfortable with something. But <clears throat> at the end of the day, you need to be realistic about what's going to work for your particular type of strategy, for your particular body type, and for, for the kind of jujitsu that you want to play. Yeah. So, uh, again, just at, at the end of the day, it all comes down to doing to doing what works, right? You know, you want to have that solid foundation, but from there, you also want to be creative in adding and removing the things that do or don't make sense for your game. Um, another thing that's important when it comes to body types is actively seeking out and sparring with the kind of people who are likely to give you challenges. And I know that this is something, that especially that small people often kind of hide from, and that that is trying to go up against guys who are just way, way, way bigger or stronger than them. Um, this is unfortunate because at the end of the day, you are what you train, right? If, if you are, if, if your main problem is that you're struggling to fight against bigger, stronger people, and you avoid bigger, stronger people because you find that situation intimidating, well, then you're never going to get better yeah. at fighting bigger, stronger people. You've got to seek out these um, uncomfortable situations and train within them. I mean, I'm at the point actually where in most cases, I am more comfortable sparring with bigger, stronger guys than I am against smaller, scrambly guys because I just spent so much of my career seeking out and training with bigger guys that I know how to fight that game better than I do uh, like a speed or agility game. Mm -hmm. um, and that it really comes down to just making sure that you go into the areas that you're uncomfortable with. So if you find yourself avoiding a role just because, you know, you know that this guy's going to frustrate you or beat you either with speed or strength or athleticism or just grip strength, that's an indication that you want to train more with that person, not train yeah. less with that person, right? Yeah. That, that means that you want to invest in loss. You want to go into that situation knowing that you're prop, you know, you might lose and it, yeah, it might be a hit to your ego, but at the end of the day, it, you're going to be better for that and you're never going to advance at those compromising, difficult situations unless you train within them. 
Absolutely. Um, definitely embracing struggle is a huge part of jiu-jitsu. So mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, I've gained so much with the big guys that I've rolled with over my journey. And uh, it really kind of, I don't know if battle, it, it kind of battle hardens you and makes it so that when you go into a competition, you're confident that you can handle someone who's bigger and stronger. You know, just like they always, one thing I was always told when I started training jiu-jitsu is always imagine that your opponent is going to be bigger and stronger right always assume you're going to be the undersized person if you can if you can always set that handicap for yourself and always think about how you need to focus on your technique being superior um you're going to be better prepared in the long run and i think the same thing happens in the street yeah yeah i think that the thing with um training with bigger guys is that you have way less leeway to make mistakes i think a lot of people maybe are overly inflating their their met their prowess with jujitsu because they're so used to sparring with people their own size or even smaller and that allows you to make mistakes and to get away with taking shortcuts whereas if you're giving up a lot of size and strength you can't make those mistakes so that that's another reason why personally i prefer to spar with you know people much bigger than me because it gives me much more immediate and direct feedback about whether i'm actually doing something right or wrong Mm -hmm. yeah so up until this point, we've, we've talked very much about, you know, the, why you should train with bigger people. But I guess the, the next question and probably what most people want to know is, okay, how do you actually deal with these freaking behemoths who, you know, outweigh you by 50, 100, 100 plus pounds? Um, and we probably want to specifically talk about this from a, like a female perspective where you're always going to be giving up a significant amount of strength when you're rolling with guys as well. Um, Matt, any comments to start this? Yeah. So, some of the things that I like to think about when I'm rolling with someone who's bigger or stronger is, um, of course, uh, alignment is key, right? Anytime that your partner can compromise your posture, structure, and base, they basically deny you the resources to escape. Something we, we've talked a lot about, and I'm sure we're never going to stop talking about it just because it's basically the... The, it's it's the main foundation for the, the the jiu-jitsu style that I play. So the alignment concepts play a lot into things like, you know, how you're managing your frames, how your uh, feet are planted so that you can move your hips, right? Um, and uh, yeah, also keeping your posture straight. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're going to get absolutely folded up. Mm-hmm. So you have to always think about that and, and, and things like uh, knee-elbow connection, you know, creating strong structures uh, and also managing layers of guard so generally when we think about fighting with a bigger person nine times out of ten the the smaller person is probably going to be on the bottom unless you really want to get into a takedown war with someone who's a lot bigger than you so um, I think it's really important to think about the three phases of guard that we've discussed. We have a guard, uh, a three-part series on the guard on engagement, maintenance, and, re- and uh, recovery. And of course, if you're if you're going against a big guy and they get into the reco- recovery phase on you and they've passed your guard, you're, you know, this is now we've fallen several steps behind and we're digging ourselves out of a hole now. So this is we do not want this to happen. Um, I actually had a student the other day tell me, you know, I'm having really hard time maintaining my my guard and and getting from the third or second phase back to the first phase. What should I do? And I and the answer is almost always the same. It's, you know, focus on your engagement phase and, and basically deny your opponent the ability to pass your guard, deny them the ability to get inside your guard and and put pressure on you. You know, we've discussed before there's a concept uh, Keenan Cornelius calls tempo. A lot of the time we talk about setting the pace, it basically just I guess if I could just put it in simple terms, 
that if I'm playing guard, I want to designate my hands to gripping and, uh, and you know, if I have to change my grips, that's fine. But I want to be using my grips in, in a way where I'm breaking my opponent's alignment rather than just framing, right? If my, if my hands are just used to frame, I'm essentially on the defense, right? And, and I'd like to avoid that because, uh, you know, being, if you're, if you're on top, one of the main strategies I like to do on the flip side is to force my opponent to just frame with their hands, right? If I'm in my opponent's spider guard and they've set up a strong lasso, I'm nowhere on the offense, right? I'm, I'm pretty much purely on the defense being on the, on top and they're dictating the pace. They're allowing, uh, they're, they're using their spider guard to sweep me and knock me off balance. Whereas if I can deny them those grips from the beginning and immediately get a, get a close position where they're now framing and trying to manage the distance, I would be the one dictating the pace right now. So it's really important to, uh, to always try to use your guards to break alignment. And so, you know, if you're going to use a spider guard, I want to make sure that I can get at least a a grip, if not a two on one on a sleeve so that I can set up a frame and then start immediately trying to off balance my partner. And that would be the next thing would be, you know, don't try and play a guard. This is a problem I had when I was, you know, purple and brown, even as I would try and get into my guard. And then I would just kind of sit there and be like, I guess I'm playing spider your guard move, for buddy. Me. Yeah, your <laughs> move. When really what you need to do is is get into a guard and then immediately start breaking balance of your opponent. Yeah. Immediately start off balancing them and, and breaking alignment. And, and, and that comes down to dictating the pace, right? If, exactly. you're, if your game is like, okay, I'm in De La Hiva guard, that, uh, this is my happy place. And then you just kind of sit there and wait for the other guy to make a move. Then you're not really dictating the pace effectively. Like, especially for guards like De La Hiva that are very reactive... Um, or butterfly, like you can't just go there and then just hang out and no. wait for your opponent to move. You need to immediately be like, get in, get out. Like you need to immediately be moving right to the sweeper submission. Yeah. Um, and this is especially critical against bigger guys where you can't afford to have any window of opportunity left open to them. Yeah. Um, that was a really great explanation of some of the concerns regarding alignment and, and the engagement phase. I, I would second your comment about going back and listening to the episode on engagement. The reason why is because when you're dealing with a larger or stronger opponent, the engagement phase is often the most important part because that's the only phase where you really are on equal footing. You know, if you get to the maintenance phase where you're already like actively guard fighting with the person, that's that's okay. If you're getting to retention against a bigger person where they're they're basically passing, like it is very hard to stop a pass against a bigger opponent. Um, and I know that everyone wants to know like what is the magic guard retention technique, but the reality is, like Matt said, um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, it, it's not a satisfying answer, but the best answer is. Just don't get yourself into that situation. It's not a sexy answer, but yeah. there is no magic. It's, yeah, it's it, all about the the small micro transitions that lead up to the yeah. to the overall result, right? Yeah. Like the best analogy I can give you is like if you come to me and say, "Hey, I have ten thousand dollars in credit card debt. How do I get out of this?" Well, <laughs> I mean, I can give you some help, but it's gonna I can tell you what to do, but it's gonna be a long struggle, right? Whereas if you just don't get into that situation in the first place, it's a much easier solution, you know. Um, so it really the focus should be on the engagement phase and one one thing to also bear in mind when it comes to your opponent breaking your alignment if you're sparring with people your own size you're going to be expecting them to break your alignment the right way for for kind of lack of a better term like you know they're going to be trying to lever fight with you they're going to be hand fighting they're going to be trying to arm drag they're going to be they're going to have to do proper jujitsu to break your alignment 
when you're fighting with someone who has such a size advantage, they might not need to do proper jujitsu to break your alignment. Sometimes they can just like shoulder check you and that's enough to take you out of alignment. So when you're sparring with a bigger person, you need to be better than good alignment. Like you need to be, um, you need to understand that they can break your alignment, not just by doing jujitsu, but by doing bad techniques. So your defense needs to be even better than it would normally be. And that takes a lot of getting used to. And again, the only way way that you can really get that level of comfort is to throw yourself into the lion's den and just spar against bigger people all the time. Yeah, and not to assume that uh, bigger people don't have good technique. Obviously, that's not true. But definitely, um, there is, you know, I, I have certain people that I train with where they're big and strong, but because of certain things that they do, they actually compromise their own yes. base. Uh, and, and they go, you know, and we were planning on talking about you know, sacrificing, sacrificing your alignment for techniques. And in the end, we're paying for it. And we're possibly going to do a, an episode later on about how you can be more frugal with your style to be more effective. But, um, <clears throat> but basically, yeah, like, uh, understanding that some people are going to be bigger and stronger, but possibly doing things incorrectly i guess mm-hmm. is the term yeah, is yeah. something that we're not always prepared for yeah so it's important to understand and especially like you know if you roll with some white belts sometimes techniques don't work on white belts because you don't get the proper reaction that you're expecting so you have to actually think think on a you know that, that they're not going to have as 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 advanced of a reaction to your move mm-hmm. and it could possibly possibly re- uh, call for a totally different reaction on your part yeah, so yeah yeah so it's really important to understand that you know people that have different reactions maybe the thing that you know he's uh, or he or she might is supposed to do to defend your attack it might not be what's going to happen yeah it's so. like phil davis had a great quote where he said sometimes a white belt is the most dangerous person on the mat and his logic was because they're going to do things that you don't expect people to do yeah. right they're going to do the wrong thing but the interesting thing is sometimes the wrong thing works if it catches the guy off guard right it's true yeah um and and the thing to bear in mind is you know when it comes to um dealing with to breaking someone's alignment like yeah the efficient way to break someone's alignment is to exploit levers right and to break their posture their structure, their base. But if someone is big enough, they can break your alignment in inefficient ways. Like they can just body check you, (laughs) right? Um, That doesn't mean that you can't defend against that. It just means that against a bigger guy, there are going to be strategies that they employ that you just might not expect. And you have to learn to get comfortable with those and expect that just as likely as you would expect an arm drag or a leg drag. Yeah. Um, another another strategy that I find really effective with bigger guys, and this has <laughs> only come to me through years of getting smashed by by larger opponents, is don't let them on top of you. And by that I mean, you know, when you're managing your guard and you're trying to set up your grips or whatever, um, you don't have to just concede the position of being right in front of them. It's mm-hmm. it's like the equivalent of being in a boxing match and just standing right in front of each other and trading shots. You know, the the more conditioned, technical, and and uh, tougher opponent is going to win usually. So if I'm a smaller guy and I'm rolling with bigger guys, lots of times uh, I spend the first minute of the round just moving around on my butt, scooting around. They come in close enough trying to grab my legs. I scoot away and I force them to reset. Mm-hmm. You know, all of, all of this takes energy on their part to reset every time and to now try to approach a brand new guard again. So yeah. creating dominant angles on a bigger opponent is a really strong concept. Yeah. If I'm playing a spider guard or a De La Hiva guard with an, a larger opponent, I don't want to just sit in front of them. I want to get up on my elbow 
elbow. I want to try and scoot around their back, see if I can create that angle where I'm, you know, they have to now square up to me. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty universal for all combat sports and all combat situations that you don't want to be right in the line of fire. You want to move around and doing so has really helped me deal with bigger opponents and, uh, you know, essentially prevented me from getting squashed underneath a big opponent. Yeah. Whereas if your strategy for going against a big opponent is, you know, you, maybe you're a really, really good half guard player. You like half guard. So you pull half guard. Well, all of a sudden you've denied yourself some really crucial frames such as your feet, you know, just pulling into a clamp base guard like a half guard. And now this big person's on top of you. So, you know, doing that over and over again, you might be uh, setting yourself up for some hard times. But if you play a seated guard and they come in and try and approach your guard and pass you right away, but you remanage the distance by scooting out, now you're forcing them to reset. You're forcing them to, uh, to get a little bit frustrated and you're still safe. So I think, um, you know, being sometimes less is more. You don't need to just concede the bottom position and immediately get crushed by someone a lot bigger. Yeah, yeah. And uh, another thing that I would add on to that, if your game involves getting underneath the guy and elevating him, which is very much the kind of game that I play, um, the having dominant angles is especially important in that situation because what you don't want is a situation where the guy on top is able to base and just hunker down on top of you because you'll never get out, right? So even when you're underneath the guy, it's possible to establish dominant angles, right? Like it, it usually you, you do this by switching rapidly between different types of guards, like from single leg X to X to, to even to Delaheva or to something like that. Um, what you don't want to do is get into like a power struggle where the guy is just hunker down on top of you and you're madly trying to do some like single leg X sweep um, and he's not moving and he's not moving because he won't move and, and let's be honest right like when you're sparring with a bigger guy usually you are going to wind up in this position where you're underneath them so you need to understand that if, if they get into a bait into base from there and they're able to, to hunker down on top of you you don't want to try to just power out of that no. you've got to create a, a, a dominant angle and normally the way to do that from there is by switching to a different type of guard or like Matt said relying on transitions rather than trying to just rely on like a, a strong hip bump or something from that capacity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, the the little micro transitions really add up a lot, especially when you're underneath a big opponent. Mm -hmm. uh, like I think one of the concepts we is a shifting platforms. Yeah. We talk about where, where basically if a big person is on top of me <clears throat> and I feel which direction their force is coming from, I can now, if I'm in proper base, assuming, um, I might not be able to push them off of me to create enough space to, you know, to recompose my frames, but I can move my own body, thus changing the, what they need to, the angle that they need to drive the force vector down on me. So, you know, moving, moving underneath your opponent and essentially just being a, uh, a constant being quicksand basically right like yeah just just being fluid and being able to transition your position from the bottom and finding those little spots where you're where uh, your opponent isn't driving their weight down on they're gonna have to constantly recompose their pressure yeah and um and hopefully <clears throat> excuse me during these micro transitions we can find a spot where we can wedge in a frame and create knee elbow connection or or uh you know coil our limbs yeah 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 uh, i i think that being you know, this is something that was a total breakthrough for me when dealing with bigger guys uh, in order for them to be able to use the, the weight of gravity they need to be able to hunker down on top of you and consistently apply pressure and if you're constantly and fluidly moving not necessarily even big movements but you're just not giving them a stable platform to rest their weight on top of they're not going to be able to use that pressure against you uh, you know the best example I can think of is like 
try, you know, if you stand on a table, how hard is that? It's not hard at all. It's very easy to let gravity do the work. But if you try to stand on top of a yoga ball, <laughs> that's a lot harder to do, right? It's a lot harder to create just downward pressure using gravity. You're constantly slipping and sliding to the side. Mm -hmm. And if a bigger guy is on top of you, that's how you want it to feel for them. So you're not doing these big, massive, explosive power bumps, but you're just being very like wiggly for lack of a better yeah. term, right? You're not giving them a stable platform that they can just drop their weight on and, uh, and hunker down on top of you're using constant motion and constant movements so that the the force of gravity never comes down on top of you directly um, that's really the main way that you you want to deal with a like a bigger opponent who is attempting to put weight down on top of you mm. um, something else that you kind of hunker or ties back to what we were talking about earlier regarding engagement uh, it doesn't really matter how big and strong you are if a bigger, stronger guy cannot grip you effectively. They can't really do much to you. So winning the grip fight is probably the most important thing that you can do to, to dominate a bigger guy. Definitely. Um, like, and, and this applies in gi and no gi. I'm not talking about necessarily just like grabbing the collar or grabbing the sleeve. Um, I'm talking about you being able to control them with your hands and, and check them with your hands and them not being able to do it to you. Like, I, I don't care if you can bench press 500 pounds. If you can't grab me, you can't can't do anything to me, right? Yeah. So, Just denying your opponent access to your levers while you're trying to get control of their levers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this comes back to like grips dictating position, right? Your opponent is not going to be able to dictate the position if they cannot grab you. So my my suggestion would be against a larger guy. The first and foremost thing you have to do is watch what their hands are doing. You cannot let them get a dominant grip against yeah. against you, especially when they're trying to pass your guard. But even from other positions as well, right? Like if, you know, if you're dealing with a bigger guy and they have side control on you, man, if they get that arm around your head, you yeah. could be there for a long, long time. So... It, it's really important, especially against bigger guys, to respect that principle. Um, and again, we did a whole um, conversation about this on the engagement episode, but the if someone is attempting to get a dominant grip on you, you need to invert control of that grip. Um, you need to either break the grip, honestly, probably not a, a likely option against a bigger guy. Yeah. You need to be able to invert control of the grip, which means like swimming your arm around so that now the grip benefits you and not them. Or you need to be able to just change the angle completely so the grip is no longer useful. So uh, like a common example of this is if someone's got a good grip on you and you switch the dominant angle, like Matt said, like if you switch guards, they might find that that grip no longer benefits them and they might just give it up on their own because it, it's now a liability to them. Mm -hmm. So these are things that are super important when dealing Dealing, um, with a larger opponent, especially like I, th I think that if, if I had to tell you the the three big things to focus on when dealing with a stronger person, number one is don't be a stable platform, like allow, you know, don't be shifting so that they can't drop their weight on you. Number two is be very careful about the grip fight, win the grip fight every time. And the third thing I would also say is don't leave any limbs dangling. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's really important. Yeah, we, you know, this this comes down to like the whole limb coiling thing is especially critical against a bigger guy. Um, if you have an arm or a leg dangling out there, they might like it is really easy for a big guy to arm drag you or to leg drag you or to pin your arm. Like, and and they can. It's also easier for a bigger, strong guy to ex to exert like breaking pressure against a limb or to isolate it. So you want to keep your your arms and your legs in tight at all times even from bottom position like if the guy's got side control on you you want to still keep them tucked in because as soon as they're able to pull one of those arms or legs free you're probably not going to get it back yeah um i, I and for those of you who are maybe you know 
wondering, well, where, where can I get some resources on actual grip concepts? Because it's very hard to, to just talk about this and tell people what we mean. Um, I'd recommend Jonathan Thomas, who's got a great Instagram account. And he, I think he's pretty much exclusively a gi fighter. Uh, it's one of the best resources for grip fighting concepts in the gi that I've seen. Um, and they're really quick, easy to watch videos. It's one of the main resources I used when I was trying to revamp my gi game because I was getting, you know, pretty pretty damn good in, in no gi, but then I was ignoring my gi development. So when I put the gi back on, and I mean, I've always trained in the gi, but when I really said, okay, I want to like, I want to compete in the gi again and really make that a, a focus, I was finding that I was losing a lot of grip battles and I really needed to look at what I was doing for my grips. You know, it's one of the main differences between gi and no gi is the, the grip fighting within the engagement phase and all the different guards you can establish. So definitely check out Jonathan Thomas as a resource for, you know, people who are maybe a little bit unclear of things they should be doing when they're gripping. You'll find a lot of great information there. Also, uh, another thing talking about going against a bigger opponent is understanding center of gravity. So Mm -hmm. like we talked about shifting platforms and things like that and, and always moving underneath your opponent, but just uh, going against a big person, you don't want to go strength for strength. So uh, I think one of the best examples is from the half guard position. You know, if you're going to come up in the dog fight situation and you know, you have, you have several options you can either come up and wrestle them and and try and get on top or you can go underneath and do the the rolling sweep or the coyote guard or whatever whatever you're gonna do um don't go into the strength you know like when you when i'm going when i'm trying to come up on someone and i I meet a wall i almost instantly change directions right Mm -hmm. and that and that quick sudden directional change Mm -hmm. is what is going to open up uh, it's what is what's going to open up opportunities through micro transitions, right? So, so if I'm going up and and I'm trying to come up and and wrestle my opponent, and I feel like they've compensated their base, and maybe they've they put on a wizard, so I feel that 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 underhook is now nullified. I'm going to immediately change my direction. I'm going to go underneath now. Hopefully, they can. I force them to base out, which means I can now go back up into the dogfight, right? So, being the water that floats around the rock, I think, is a really sound analogy for. For going a uh, smaller guy going against a bigger guy, you know, you're not going to be able to to deal with their size and strength, but you will be able to hopefully uh, mentally defeat them by always changing directions and and staying fluid. Yeah, and another thing that I'll add, we talked about the fight or flight response in earlier episodes, and I think everyone knows, you know, you're supposed to stay loose when sparring, but the reality is. If you're not used to sparring with a big person um, or, or even someone who just is a lot more aggressive than you're used to, you can wind up in situations where you kind of go into panic mode and your body tenses up. And this is something that I've, I've noticed a, happens a lot, especially when you're getting dominated by a big guy. You know, there's a tremendous amount of pressure coming down on you. And what happens here is a lot of people make the mistake of tensing up and freaking out and trying to bench press their way out. And that is a terrible strategy against a bigger guy. So I, or I would, in general. Yeah, in, <laughs> in general. But against a bigger guy, it's especially yes. bad. So what I would suggest is be especially mindful of staying loose when you're sparring against a bigger person. Um, you're you're never going to be able to go strength for strength against them. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. Mm. So be mindful of when you're kind of panicking, when you're getting crushed and, and understand that in those cases getting frantic and, and you know going tense is the worst thing that you can do. Um, and and it, it might take you a long time to get out, right? If your guard's been passed by someone who's really big and really good at top control, and, and let's be honest, most big people are good at top control, um, you might be there for a while. So don't, don't expect that you're going to be able to escape in 
10 seconds. It, it can be a long process and you just need to be patient and not make mistakes. Yeah. Now, I mean, we've talked about fighting a bigger guy. Should we talk about fighting maybe a, uh, a an opponent with really long legs or, or long limbs or, or uh, strong grips? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, let's let's maybe go through some of these things in, in turn. Um, long limbs is another one that trips up a lot of people, um, mostly because people who have longer limbs and, and usually when people say this, they're talking about longer legs. Um, there's kind of a few things that can come up there as an issue. One is that these guys are usually really good at establishing leg frames, like particularly like knee shield guard is often a favorite of guys with really long limbs. Um, they're also, of course, they traditionally tend to have really awesome triangle chokes, right? It's just, it's a lot easier to break someone's posture and get good leverage on them from a triangle position. Mm-hmm. If you've got longer legs, it's hard to do it if you have shorter legs. Um, this this is an interesting one. It's I, I would say that the important thing that you need to understand when you're dealing with someone who has longer legs, usually the main complaint that I that comes comes to my attention is people say, "Man, I just can't pass this dude's guard." Right? They've either got them tied up in some crazy spider thing, or they've got a knee shield that you just can't get past or past. Um, one thing that you need to understand is if someone has got you tied up in a guard that you're just not able to get past, the worst thing to try to do is to power through it. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a mistake that a lot of people make, especially from the knee shield, is like uh, they'll get trapped in this knee shield and this guy's got this like giant leg in front of you and they try to just like drive through it or crush the leg. Um, that's not going to work. But the good news is it doesn't matter how long your legs are. The approach to this is kind of the same and that is to back up and change the angle, right? Exactly. If, if what some, I would say. If someone has put a wall in front of you that you can't get through, the worst option is try to, to try to run through the wall continuously. The better thing to do is back up and try to reestablish a different angle. Like a common thing to, that I do is if someone's knee shielding me, I, I grab their pant legs in, in gi if I can. I back up and I, I pull their legs up so that they're no longer on their side anymore. Now they're in more of a headquarters position. Yeah. And that creates just a fraction of a second where there's an opening and then you can pass or, or you can switch the angle and now you're in control of the yes. situation. Um, whenever someone has an, an insurmountable frame in front of you, don't try to run through the frame yeah. is basically my advice. Yeah, I, I totally agree. If you can't redirect a frame and obviously someone who has a good idea of structure and really long limbs, it can be a nightmare. So again, yeah, strength for strength is not what we want to do. Backing out and for like definitely as we back out, I, you know, I consider breaking dominant grips on, of my opponent as part of backing out. Like if they have a collar, I need to break that grip before I can back out. Otherwise I'm just going to go for a ride, but backing out, breaking all the grips and basically forcing them to reset is a really important thing to do. And also if I'm, let's say I'm not inside uh, my opponent's uh, knee shield, we're literally just in the engagement phase and maybe they pulled guard and they're looking for grips, but they have really long legs. Um, I, I keep a bit of more of a distance than I would a normal person because I know that I can be tangled up real quick. So keeping, keeping your, uh, keeping yourself at a safe distance and then, um, starting to dictate the pace by setting angles and trying to get in without them getting grips is going to be, uh, part of the challenge. And, and also, you know, if you're standing in, in, a, in a really rangy opponent's Dele Hiva guard or headquarters, you basically give them the opportunity to grab your feet, mm-hmm. which is going to compromise your base because you're giving them lever control. So always backing out and resetting and, and you know, not going through the guard, I think is the perfect, perfect advice for yeah. someone with long legs. Another thing that a lot of people don't 
often think about, but it's something that I've, I've noticed myself doing sometimes. Um, when you are sparring with someone who is a lot longer than you, it, it is very tempting sometimes to extend your body out and stretch yourself out in ways that, that break the limb coiling principle. Like for, for example, like if you're, if, if you're like stuck in someone's like half guard and they're really big and rangy, a lot of the time, one of the things that you want to do in, in half guard is, you know, you want to reach up and grab the guy's collar or get your arm around their head, uh, against a really long person. Attempting to do this can result in you stretching your whole body out because they're so much longer than you. That's not a good thing to do um, because it it open you know it opens up your your stomach. It allows them to get like a strong wedge against that. Basically, it breaks that principle of limb coiling. Like you want to be tight and controlled so that your opponent can't grab anything. And, but if your opponent is so much larger than you that you're having to stretch out to grab their head, then it actually exposes your arms. It, it exposes your legs. It exposes your stomach. So this is something you need to be especially aware of when you're uh, like in the guard of a bigger per. Uh, of a longer person is that it, you don't want to be like stretched out on top of them like a blanket. You want to be small and tight so that you don't have openings. A lot of big guys, they will like put you in a knee shield and they will wait for you to try to reach up to grab their head. And by doing that, then you're giving them your arm as a lever because it's now completely isolated from mm -hmm. your body. So you, it, it takes a degree of patience and awareness there. Um, I was sparring with a really much longer guy than me the other day and I realized I was doing this. And so I started backing out and just like getting really small and that's that's a really frustrating experience for a big person because they're so used to you kind of like throwing your arm up towards them and if you don't do that and it really takes away a lot of the options that they would otherwise want to play mm -hmm. cool and what about going against someone with with good like really strong oh, grips oh god um, th this is a, a hard one like especially in in gi it's not as much of a nightmare because because in reality in gi getting gripped is going to suck no matter what but in, in no gi having a good having good grips is like having a superpower like I mean there there are some people I've trained with who just have like gigantic freakishly strong hands and if they get a grip around like your wrist it's like it's as strong as if someone were grabbing your gi that is a, a hard situation to deal with yeah I, I have a close friend named Clint Cooper who's uh, he runs PTT West Kelowna uh, and really good friend of mine good training partner we've we've fought a few times and and he's he's just a really good guy really good um really good jujitsu fighter he's a little bit smaller than me but really freakishly strong and his hands are so strong uh, he's got these like thick little sausage fingers <laughs> if he ever grabs your gi <clears throat> it's a nightmare to break his grip right so Again, I think prevention is really important, but remember that your partner is not going to be able to grab you with his feet. He might be able to create hooks or clamps, but he can't use his feet to grab a collar or a sleeve. So I know that when I'm, a, you know, if I'm going with a guy like this and I'm approaching his guard, I know that where I need to pay attention to especially is his hands. So generally what I try and do is I try and dominate at least one of his grips. So, uh, uh, sorry, one of his sleeves. So I know that if I can dominate one of his hands or his sleeves, then he's not going to be able to use that hand to grip me. And even if I have to do a two on one, especially if he grabs my collar, I can't just break that collar grip with one hand. I need to use two hands to break it. And once I do, I'm going to maintain my grip of that sleeve because I know that he will only be able to grip me with one hand. And then immediately from there, I'm going to start initiating a passing sequence before he can re-grip me and, and set me up. So you know, going against someone with really strong grips or a really effective spider guard, a good way that I think you can shut that down is really try to work to get control of their wrist or their sleeve um, and preventing them from using both hands to grip you. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I think this comes back to the different ways that you can deal with grips. Um, Grip breaking is not the only way to deal with a grip. Um, In fact, in a lot of ways, it's the least efficient and most risky way of dealing with a grip. Uh, Because when, you know, first of all, breaking a grip requires uh, a lot of power, a lot of strength, and it it also leaves you open. Because for a second, you know, you're you're exerting force on the guy's hand, you're focused on his hand, and while you're doing that, you know, like a magician, you know, you're focused on one hand and the guy might be like taking your back with the other hand. Or you give up your base while you're trying to break the grip. So very real. So inverting control of the grip often be preferable where you kind of swim your hand onto the inside or maybe you just move your entire body in such a way that that grip is no longer beneficial to the person the other thing matt that you mentioned and uh, this is especially important from when you're you're the guy on top in guard is controlling the range like there's that goldilocks zone in when you're in someone's guard where if you're too close they can tie you up if you're too far then no one really has any meaningful advantage. And but, they basically have to sit up. Yeah, and, and, they, and they, they can just get up because no one's touching each other. But there's that Goldilocks zone where you can grab their legs, but they can't really grab anything on you. And that's often the right attack zone when yeah. you're going into someone's guard. Because then you can get a good grip on their feet before they can do anything to you. Or if they're playing a seated guard, maybe you can get a good grip on their hands before they can do anything to you. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, that, that covers um, a lot on the topic of size discrepancies. Uh, I guess in terms of other different weird body types, you know, there there are some people who are just really short and stocky. That's often a, a tricky one to deal with. Especially when they just want to, you know, coil their limbs. And... <laughs> Be like a giant angry turtle, basically. Yeah, there's, so. always, there's always those types of opponents that maybe positionally you can dominate, but then once you get there, you can't seem to expose a lever because yeah. they're... They're well, built like Kirby, basically. Well, what what <laughs> yeah. Rob calls it is they take their ball and go home, right? Yeah, They're yeah, content yeah. to just sit there. They're losing the, the match technically, but they don't want to get submitted, right? And these, this is always a really frustrating thing. So I usually just knee ride or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, try to make their life hell for doing something like that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing in a situation like that is you never, tw- you never try to want to try to force something that isn't there. If, like, you're going for an arm bar on the guy and he knows you're going for the arm bar and he just, like, curls up and does basically, basically he just, you know, to your point, takes their ball and goes home they just defends without purpose just defends for the for the sake of defending and hoping that they'll stall you out the best thing to do in that approach rather than trying to force it is to transition to, to a different attack or to something else i find like you know a soccer kick yeah. <laughs> well maybe not so much but you know tra- transition to something else where there might be a better opening um and that kind of comes down to where being fluid is important um Something that I'd like to talk about too in and maybe this is actually the topic for an episode in and of itself um, when you're when you're dealing with um, like when you're sparring with like kids or you're sparring with with women, um, a lot of the time there is not just a size or strength disparity, but there's also a psychological attribute to that as well. Whereas it's it's often not totally clear what is what you should do or what you shouldn't do. Um, I don't know if there's a right answer for this, but I can tell you that you know I used to when I was training, you know, at the beginning, I used to go really light with with women because I didn't want to be like smashing people people, you know, and, and like basically giving, having, making them not enjoy jujitsu. But it got to the point where I realized that, you know, if, if you're doing that, you're actually doing a disservice to that person because you're denying them the opportunity to grow from discomfort. You know, you, jujitsu is supposed to be uncomfortable. You're not learning anything. And you see this a lot in like cardio kickboxing, right? People go and they delude themselves into thinking they're learning how to fight, but 
They're just they're, hitting pads. They're just hitting pads. And usually There's, not focusing on tech. Yeah, it, it is the, the resistance that forces you to become better. So if you are just going... so, And this also applies to bigger people training with smaller people. If you're just going so light because you're afraid to make them uncomfortable that you're not giving them any meaningful, realistic resistance, you're not doing them a favor, you're not doing yourself a favor. And um, there, there are ways that you can be assertive and that you can actually fight someone without like putting them into like a total panic mode and ruining their day. Yeah. Um, I, at the, I, right now, the way that I train, um, regardless of who I'm training with, regardless of their age or their gender or their size, I train with basically the same level of intensity, which is like 70 to 80%. Um, you know, I'm not trying to kill anybody. Um, I'm trying to, to win off of, off of technique and off of superior position, but I, I don't train any differently with girls than I do with guys. And if that means that I'm going in there and I'm just like running a clinic on a white belt, then so be it. But I'm also going to sign the dotted line. (laughs) No, but but what I mean is like, I I, I will, you know, I'll do it in a friendly way. I'll I'll explain what's happening and what they should do different. I'm not just going to go in there and then just smash them and then just leave. Like, you know, I might do, I might do that. And then I might say, so here's how I did that. And then give them a few opportunities to bang out some reps on a defense or something. It's like we said earlier, you want to kind of raise the level of everybody in the room because that makes you better. And it really shouldn't matter what gender or age or size your opponent is at that point. Like you should always be focused on, you know, on giving, you know, realistic resistance to that person, but also showing concern for their best interests and helping them improve too. Yeah. And and of course, it's going to... It's going to depend on if you're talking about kids. Kids are all different levels and sizes. And, you know, some kids I find I have a few kids that are they're the top of the class. They dominate every role they go with. So when I go with them, I want to give them really hard mm-hmm. roles. You know, I want to make sure that they know they know who's boss. No, I, just want, to make, <laughs> I want to make sure that they get challenged. Right. Yeah. Like you said, uh, gr- growth from discomfort. But then there's also the kids that are quite new or smaller. And, and for them, obviously, I'm going to. Uh, I'm not going to be mounting them and and rubbing my bare chest on across their face. Hamburger mounting, grind your chest hair into their face. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you do have to assess who you're rolling with for sure and assess their goals. You know, if they're a competitor, I tend to be a little bit harder on my competitors. Mm-hmm. I, I expect a uh, a little bit more grit out of them because that is necessary to succeed in competition. But if someone's a recreational, um, you know, they or and not very athletic or whatever, or you know older whatever whatever it may be i'm i'm going to adjust a little bit but definitely i think the the 70 to 80% rule is is pretty good mm-hmm. across the board no matter who you're training with unless yeah. you're really preparing for a competition that really means a lot to you and you're going you know you're in a room full it's a competition class and it's expected that you're going to go hard then that's a different story yeah, so yeah, yeah. Okay. And what, one more thing I just wanted to mention is, uh, you know, going against smaller opponents so, mm-hmm. or, or really scrambly or, you know, agile opponents. Um, I, th- I like to knee ride their eye socket. I find that <laughs> slow <laughs> down. Uh, I think um, you can look at it two different ways. One way is you're going, uh, this is my my personal strategies. One thing I like to do is I will either try to take the the 
stance of immobilization. So I'm going to try and pin uh, like a limb, like two on one on a lever or uh, get a dominant angle on them, like hopefully get the back and, and really immobilize them, you know, mm-hmm. side control, cross face, slow them down so that they know that they can be controlled, right? If, if I can't do that, sometimes I like to take the stance where I'm going to be uh, more fluid and I'm going to actually allow them to work and, and allow them to move. This is actually something that I see Marcelo Garcia do a lot when he rolls is he allows his partner to move and then he gets ahead of the sequence and dominates them anyways. And I, fu- mm-hmm. I find that that's one of the things that I did that uh, really helps me with transitions is allowing your partner to move and then kind of beating them to their defense and already countering them before they're in the next sequence. Give them a false glimmer of hope and then take it away. Exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I think that uh, it's easy to do that against someone who's really scrambly and small because they tend to have a very movement-based game. So if you can mm-hmm. predict what their, what their defenses are going to be, you know, not only are you going to uh, get better at those transitions in the future, but um, you're going to be able to dominate that situation right there. And, and usually dealing with someone who's really scrambly, the best way to do this is controlling levers, I find. Yeah. Um, so- controlling the ends of levers is, you know, probably the most efficient way you can control someone, period. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's sort of the stance I take. I either, uh, or one leads to another. Maybe I start, I let them move a little bit. I let them try and set up guards as I'm transitioning around. Then once I get that dominant angle on them, then I start implementing a pressure game and, and really immobilizing them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I find with smaller or faster people, just like how against a bigger person, you know, you don't want to play strength for strength. Even if that might be your natural reaction is to try to match strength with strength. with strength. You want to train it out of yourself and don't do that. Same with, with scrambly guys. You don't want to try to match speed for speed. Honestly, that's probably where you're going to get injured. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds fair. Yeah, so... In that case, rather than trying to speed up to match their speed and play into their game, I try to slow them down. Uh, this is a lot easier in gi, for obvious reasons. But even in no gi, um, you know, if you just deny them the ability to do rapid transitions, if you just kind of like try to pin them, um, even if it's it's not actively achieving anything for you right now, but just to take away their ability to exploit micro transitions and force them to sit still for a second, then you can start to impose your will a little bit. <laughs> to your point earlier, Matt, um, you know, Cyborg was in town a while ago. You were at that seminar, right? I was right? the and, first yeah, role. You, you were the nail from oh, what I understand. Um but you can't I, find a break in that guy's center of gravity. Yeah. It was ridiculous. But I, I what heard, a I, I didn't go, but I heard a lot of people say that one of the things that he was espousing was like, um, you know, basically to not pass completely, but like go, yeah. like get, like get halfway through a pass and then stall out and let the other guy burn <laughs> some energy trying yeah. to get out and then complete the pass. That's like exactly basically what he did. let him hang himself. Right. <laughs> he, he let me get like a deli Heva guard and then he would, uh, he would just break it and then pass part way, but not move. And I'm like, okay, usually guys continue and finish the pass here, but he's just smashing me here. Or he would let me set up a worm guard and then he would literally just stand up and I, it broke my grip. I'm yeah. like, this guy is so big and strong and athletic. Um, but, really, really amazing jujitsu cyborg. But what you a, don't even need to be big and strong to play that kind of strategy. It's um, it's just, it's kind of like psychological warfare. Like my my instructor has started doing this kind of stuff too, where um, he's he basically he's talked about like incomplete passing, where like you intentionally rather than just like trying to force yourself into a pass, because guys are so good now at scrambling and recovering, especially from side control, that you kind of like go halfway through the pass, you let them burn some energy and create openings, and then you exploit those and. 
you know, rather than just trying to get greedy and go right into the pass. So it's, it's an interesting strategy that I'm seeing crop up in a few different places. Mm-hmm. Cool. So just recapping what we talked about today regarding size discrepancies. Um, first and foremost, do what works. Know your body type. Um, you know, they're actively research what other people are doing and understand that it, you know, you want to learn as much as you can. But at the end of the day, some techniques are going to favor your body type and strategy. And you need to be honest with yourself about that. We talked about growing from discomfort, especially when dealing with bigger and stronger people. You're not going to get better at dealing with that, that kind of body type unless you actively train in that environment. We talked about investing in loss. Um, for the first, you know, for years, you're going to ha- have to go through a lot of suffering when you're training with bigger people because it's hard to learn to overcome that hurdle. Um, you need to be willing to put your ego on the shelf and go and spar with those people who have superior strength, even if that means that you lose. We talked about dictating the pace, um, meaning that you want to control the tempo of the fight. You don't want to let the bigger person impose that tempo on you. Um, And particularly as a smaller person, that means you often want to be creating dominant angles that prevent them from really being able to use their size and strength in any meaningful way. We talked about micro transitions uh, and shifting platforms, meaning that you never want to be a, a solid base that your opponent can drop their weight on top of. You always want to be shifting and moving so that they're not standing on a table, they're standing on a yoga ball. And the way you do that is by having your feet planted in base, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. kind of the the mother of all hip mobility. Yeah, it's going to be very hard to be shifting and to be creating micro transitions if you're not using your feet. It's going to be yeah. very, very hard to do that effectively. Uh, we talked about how grips dictate position, meaning that in, in this context, to deal with a bigger or stronger person, controlling the grip fight is probably your best early chance of dominance. We talked about different strategies for inverting grips, meaning that you know you can either break a grip You can invert control, usually by circling your hand or your leg to the inside, um, or you can just move your entire body in such a way that the grip no longer benefits, especially important against bigger and stronger people to invert grips. Uh, We talked about limb coiling, so meaning that you never want to leave an arm or a leg dangling, especially against bigger or longer or stronger opponents. And we talked about staying loose, which means in this context to avoid your body's natural response to tense up when dealing with a stronger person. You never want to match strength with strength Um, and that is especially important when you're dealing with someone who's just a lot bigger or stronger than you so matt if nothing else to talk about here i got a question that came in cool cool so we were asked and this is actually we talked about dictating the pace today but we were asked how do we balance the back and forth between trying to enforce our own game versus allowing our opponent to lead the dance. In other words, when do we decide to be the aggressor and how does that contribute to our game? As soon as possible. Yeah. (laughs) Don't wait. Yeah, I I think that's the right answer here, but I think it's very important to also understand that being the, you know, we use the word aggression a lot. Um, I don't think that aggression is really the, the way that you want to think about this because aggression kind of implies a lack of control in a lot of ways. You know, the, the way that I was always taught to manage my emotions as a child was you can be passive, you can be aggressive, or you can be assertive. You never want to be passive because you're completely giving up control. You never want to be aggressive because you're also giving up control. But in, in this case, you're giving up control to yourself. You know, you're not in control of your own actions. You want to be assertive, which is that, you know, you want to be dominant. 
You want to be clear and, and, and you want you want to be the one dictating the pace, but you want to also be control of the in control of the situation. And in jiu-jitsu, you always want to be attempting to dictate the pace. Um, you never want to seed position. Now, I, I think probably why we're, we're being asked this is because we were talked about training. We were talking about training handicaps in the past um, and, and how if there is a particular area of your game that you want to work on, you know, we, we might kind of like let people pass to our to side control or whatever. But that doesn't mean that we're giving up the ability to dictate the pace. We're still trying to dictate the pace. It just means that in dictating the pace, we're just immediately going to that bad position. And then from there, we're trying to work out of it. But I, I never at any time allow the person to dictate the pace on me. If that happens, I, I know I'm probably going to lose the fight. Yeah. And a big mistake of lower ranked uh, practitioners is just trying to use aggression to to get to the next step, whether it be a guard pass or a sweep or whatever. And a lot of the time you either expose a lever or you break your own base or whatever. That's why you see these black belts at high levels in competitions and not a lot is happening. They're almost canceling each other out and sometimes I find kids fighting more interesting than <laughs> yeah. than black belts. But, but um, you know, it's because it's such a technical battle that's going on. And like I said, it's not as... Uh, uh, it's not as necessarily exciting because it's so clinical and so technical, but that is, that is good jujitsu. That's, uh, you know, at all, all combat sports at the highest level become a little bit boring to some degree when the opponents have the, you know, the same skill level and strength and speed. So, um, <clears throat> You know, just like the stuff we talked about today in terms of being frugal and and uh, not giving your opponent access to anything while insisting that you're the one who is going to be uh, dominating the grips, uh, that's going to be one of the main things that, that helps you sort of assert yourself and, and you know, dictate the pace and, and sort of uh, be on the offensive. If you are using your arms as frames instead of using them for grips and off-balancing your partner, you are basically behind. That's sort of a general rule that I have uh, with with myself and my students. So if I'm on top, I want to make sure that I'm the one who has, uh, you know, I'm denying access to my limbs and grips. And, uh, and another side note is usually when I'm, uh, usually when I'm on top trying to pass my, I find my head position is really important mm-hmm. too. Yeah. If I can have my head highly pretty, underutilized and under, under considered your head position is super important yeah, when, when you're on top. Yeah. One of the biggest changes that I've made, um, as a brown belt was I really started leading with my head and I don't mean sticking my head into guillotines and things like that but I I am uh I mean getting my head into that Pez dispenser position on my opponent's chest where it's too close for them to create frames. Mm -hmm. If you can get into that sweet spot there, you're going to have a really uh, good position to pass. Whereas if I'm really postured up, I'm always going to let my opponent have room to put their frames in. So keeping a head position that's really close is a, it's a strong tool to use. And then from there you can, you know, begin to use your passing or whatever. Yeah. And it should be, clarified that when we talk about dictating the pace, we're not talking about like trying to murder the guy or, you know, that actually implies a lack of control. Like, one of the things that I get great enjoyment out of is when I'm sparring with a white belt and they just like, they're super aggressive and they just want to pass no matter what. And they try to do some, they try to like go for like a Toriando or a Matador pass that they don't have. I love that. Cause you can just send them flying, yeah. <laughs> but, but so that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking, you know, it, it, dictating the pace in this case just means you might be like leaning back or hanging back in the person's guard and you're just trying to dominate the grip fight. You're trying yeah. to prevent 
them from grabbing you while you are trying to grab them. And then you pass once you've established yeah. that battle. Um, it doesn't, that, that's what dictating the pace in this context means. It doesn't mean I'm trying to throw my body past my opponent, my opponent's guard and try and bully my way through. Yeah. That implies a lack of control. That That's the opposite in some ways of trying to dictate the pace. Cause you, you can't even dictate your own actions yeah. if you're trying to like bully your way through techniques like that. Like one thing I, I almost never do now is I never try and pass an open guard when my opponent has a collar grip. I, yeah. I always try and break the collar grip before I proceed because like that collar grip dictates so much of my base. If, mm-hmm. if I'll try to pass while that my opponent has it, that it's like a really high percent chance that I'm going to get off balanced. Yeah. And yeah. then, and then I'm either going to get swept or I'm going to have to struggle to get my base back just to get back to square one. So, uh, addressing your opponent's grips, breaking that collar grip and then dominating that sleeve grip before you, you move on or, or even back out and, and set the, a different angle that, that should be your strategy. When we say dictate the pace, we don't mean rushing in. And sometimes um, some some of the biggest mistakes I see for people that are competitors is they, they think that they need to be super aggressive. They need to drive in and, and really dictate the pace per se. But really what they do a lot of the time is they, they don't take a, a pit stop. They don't, they don't try and slow things down once they get a good position and they pay for it in the end. So yeah, they burn themselves out or they leave an <clears throat> opening. Like if, if you're trying to basically throw your body into things and you're just kind of like windmilling like crazy, you know, that's that. Yeah. You're aggressive, but you're not being assertive. You're not in control. You're not dictating yeah. the pace. Exactly. Um, you're just there. You have no rhythm actually to what you're doing at all. So that's, that's not the answer either. It's, um, dictating the pace is about being in control and uh, of not just yourself, but of, of your opponent. Um, if, if you're being aggressive, you're trying to control your opponent, but you're not really controlling yourself, right? Cool. Good hope, chat. Good chat. Hope that answers that question. Thanks again for joining us. And as always, if you've got any questions or feedback, please do share it. Send it our way. All right, guys. Go train. Have a good one. Take care.